0: Well, today um, I want to continue to explore uh, what God has been saying to us through Isaiah fifty-four. Who's been enjoying the um, the looking at Isaiah fifty-four? So it's, a, it's a, an amazing chapter of the Bible, and and uh, I want to have a look at it a bit further today in another, the next part of it in in verses six to ten. But um, before we do that, I just want to. Um, set some foundation or or ask you a question. And I want you to think about this as we, we read it and as we talk about it. But who has ever lost something here? Has anyone ever lost something? Yes? Has anyone, maybe getting a little bit more personal, has anyone ever lost someone? Yes? I know my mum lost me once in the airport. And uh, and uh, I had to. Uh, I was found, thankfully, but but also we can sometimes lose someone when they pass away, which which is a, a, a huge thing. Let me ask you this question: How has that made you feel? Really? <laughs> oh, when you found it, thank you. thank you, Mary, thank you, Mary. That's good. That's good. I was, uh, I was thinking if someone had passed away and you felt relieved, that would, that would have been a bit scary. Yeah, maybe if they were suffering, you were relieved for them. But, well, so how did we feel sad? What other, what other emotions came up when you lost something? Panic. Panic, anger, yeah. Frustration, very good. Empty. Ah yeah, when they've gone, and you feel empty, you feel lost yourselves but this is the this is the idea like I think of the times I've lost, say my keys, that I would get very frustrated trying to find them, and then when I just don't seem to be able to find them i I get angry with myself, I get angry about it. Has anyone felt that, and then you sort of lose hope so you you go and get new keys cut, or you go see the locksmith, or whatever. And then once you've got your new keys, you all, all of a sudden find the old ones. Is that right? Yes? Had that experience? Lost your mobile? Gee, some people would die if they lost their mobile, I think, these days. They wouldn't know how to survive. But um, So I want you to just think of that, those feelings as we read the next part of Isaiah, And I want you to think about it in the light of losing something. This is what it says. God says, The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you says the Lord your Redeemer. To me this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have swore not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I was reading this passage, and today I want to share with you about the anger of God. Now, trust me, I'm going to share with you a component of it. I'm not going to exhaust the topic, because there's a lot of thoughts about the anger of God. But in this passage, there are some really confronting statements made by God, aren't there? He says in this passage that, for a brief moment, I abandon you. And then he says, in a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. (laughs) Now, for us in this day and age, we don't often talk about God's anger. We love to talk about a God who loves us, who will never leave us nor forsake us. So is God contradicting himself in this passage when he talks about abandoning us? And he talks about hiding his face from us in anger? That's pretty strong and so as I've been thinking about it and preparing it I've been thinking well God what are you saying to us through it and I, I obviously to fully understand it, we need to go back to what God was doing at this time and and what was happening at this time is you have to understand that God is talking to the children of Israel God's chosen people it's in the Old Testament it's before Jesus came and so he's talking to the children of Israel and if you know anything about God's relationship with the children of Israel, it was a very tumultuous relationship, mainly because the children of Israel kept on leaving God and chasing after other gods that were around at the time, whether it be Baal or other gods that were around. And continually God was going going, why are you, why are you leaving me? Why are you running away from me? Why are you turning to other gods?" And so I like to think of this context or the anger that God is showing here in this verse, I like to think of it in that space that God is talking from a space where he has lost something. That he's talking about losing the heart and the love of the children of Israel who he loves and cares for. And in that place where he has lost something, uh, he is displaying, like we would, when you lose something over and over again, and when it keeps happening and keeps happening, you get frustrated, you get angry, you, get, you, you think about abandoning the search for it, you think, I just can't put up with this anymore, isn't that right? And so in this passage, God is talking from that space. And so obviously his anger, we need to understand when we talk about anger, that not all anger is sinful. There is such a thing as righteous anger, in Ephesians, uh, oops, chapter four, verse twenty-six, it says, "Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger." So there is a uh, an understanding that there is a, a room for anger to be for us to be angry or for God to be angry without sinning. So often we think about anger and we think, "Oh, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that." But there is a place for righteous anger. This is a there's another way you could look at this is that maybe if we're talking about losing something, that God's anger is a part of his grieving process. Now that might shock some of you to think God grieves, that God, that God would grieve. But we know in our natural terms that when we would lose someone and someone passes away, that we go through a grief process, don't we? And the more they tell us, we used to talk about the stages of grief. But they tell us it's no, no longer about stages. It's just about aspects of grief. And one of those aspects is anger. Where you're angry, why did that person have to die? Why did that have to happen? Why, why am I left here on my own? I'm sure there's people in this place that you've had those feelings because of grief. And in the same way, I would, I, I would like us to understand that our God has emotions. Think about that for a moment. So for some of you, that might be a revelation that God would have emotions, but we're created in God's image. And the idea that our God is a real God, a real person who has feelings and emotions just like us. So if we're turning away from Him, He feels it and it hurts. And there's grief and there's loss and there's a, a response that sometimes would mean anger as well. Now, there's a classic example in Jesus' life when he walked this earth, and we all know the story of the fact that uh, when he, was, he walked into the temple at the time and he saw all these people selling stuff and he turned the tables over. Isn't that right? In righteous anger. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't sinning. He was in righteous anger. He said, Why have you turned my father's house into a den of thieves? Why are you using... God's house, God's place for your own personal benefit and not for the benefit of others. And it caused him to be angry and he turned over the tables. In that picture, because we know that Jesus is a representation of God in man and that he is showing us what God looks like. So he's showing us that there, there is a place for righteous anger. And it's in these moments when you read things like that when you read things about God being angry, it's in those moments that God shows us how authentically real He really is. And this is the the amazing thing, is in this passage when we read in Isaiah 54 about God getting angry and hiding His face, what, what it is showing us is, is another deeper part of who He is. He's showing us the reality of who He is. And to me, it's a a revelation or uh, an understanding that I can actually see how I can have an intimate relationship with God. Because He has real feelings. He has real emotions. When we talk about not being about religion but being about relationship, this is what it comes to. That if we understand that we have a God who when we do the wrong thing or when we walk the wrong way or do things that, he has, that displeases him, that it's not because he hates us or he's angry at us because he doesn't like us. He is angry because it hurts. He's angry because he has lost what is close to him. Now, I want to take this a little bit deeper because it's really important for us to understand that God doesn't want us to have a robotic call and response type of relationship with him. He wants us to have a real, authentic, intimate relationship with him where we understand that there are things that make him angry. There are things that hurt him. There are things that are are not nice, I guess, is a simple way to put it. But if we take this thought a little bit deeper, obviously God's talking to the children of Israel. But if we take this thought into the time when in the Garden of Eden, God lost connection with mankind... You can understand at that point when sin came into the world, God lost his creation. And in that moment, he knew that because of what had happened, that creation would have to experience punishment for what had happened. And of course, when you lose something, it frustrates you, it saddens you, but it also makes you angry. So God is responding from a broken heart. is responding from the fact that because of sin, he had to turn away from the one thing he loves. He had to turn away from the creation that he made and that he would have to be separated. And so when we're reading this passage, we're understanding that it makes God angry at this situation because he has lost something. And God's anger His his declarations that I abandoned you and and that I hid my face from you in anger is very clearly telling us something about God. It's telling us that God has lost something. And this is the first thing it tells us is that God has lost something that is extremely valuable and important to him. See, God is not angry because he doesn't like you. A lot of people think that God is angry at us because he doesn't like us. Some of us have been raised with that thought because when we did the wrong thing when we were kids, our parents probably said the wrong sort of words and said, why are you being such a stupid idiot or something like that? And so all of a sudden we take on these thoughts that I'm of no value. I made a mistake. And I've been put down and I've been told that I'm of no value. But you need to understand, God does not turn and say, why are you this and that or that sort of thing. He, He is angry because he has lost something that is so important to him. He has lost something that is the most valuable thing to him. He has lost you and I, the apple of his eye the one that he fearfully and wonderfully made, that he would be separated from it because of sin. And this is the, the, the anger that we're talking about, is that, that he has lost the thing that is most important to him, the thing that is of most value to him, you and I. This is really important for us to understand because if you lose something that doesn't really matter to you, Sometimes you don't even notice it's lost until you need it. Isn't that right? And, uh, and then you, you think, oh, well, I can go buy another one or something like that. But in this case, when, when we see God's response, we understand that it's because he has lost something that is the most important thing to him. He tells us in our text that for a brief moment I was angry. But then he reaffirms to us that because of his love and compassion for us, he will find us and bring us back to himself. He said, someone will only do that for something that is very valuable to him. As I was preparing, I was reminded of a true story. And it was made into a movie and a book and a movie. And I watched it when I was a kid. I was, would have been about eight or nine years of age. And I watched this movie. It wasn't a very good movie. It was a pretty, not in quality, I mean. It was a, a, a South African movie, actually. And it was the story of Durkie. Anyone remember this story? Some of you might not remember it. It's called Durkie Lost in the Desert. And it's actually based on a true story. And it's a really interesting, as I remember watching it, I remember thinking about the, the parallel between God and us in this story. I'll, I'll tell you what the story is or the synopsis of it. The story is about a young boy called Durkey who was flying across the Kalahari Desert in a small plane with his uncle, Pete, his Uncle Pete. who Partway through the flight, he, Uncle Pete has a heart attack. Now, Uncle Pete manages to crash land the plane fairly safely in the Kalahari Desert out in the middle of nowhere. But unfortunately, he dies from the heart attack. But Durkee and his small pet dog are still alive. They actually survive the crash. And, and the bulk of the story is about Durkee's adventures through the Kalahari Desert as he's trying to um, get out. But it, you know, in, in there, there's a, there's a really uh, funny interaction between him and the Kalahari Desert Bushmen who try to help him, but then they think his dog's an evil spirit and so they s- send them off and run away. And so... Throughout the story, though, it continually switches to between Durkee in the desert and Durkee's dad, whose name's Anton, at home. And Anton is doing whatever he can to find Durkee. He's quite a rich man, and so one for a number of weeks, what he does is he gets printed off millions of flyers telling Durkee... Um, how to stay safe in the desert, how to to survive the desert, what to do, not to go wandering everywhere, stay in one place and and all of that. And so he gets a plane to fly over the desert and just drop millions and millions of these flyers, trying to send a message to Durkey of how he can stay safe and survive in the desert. And and then ultimately, um, they're just not being able to find him. So what Anton does is... His father, he actually has to mortgage his house, uh, and he takes, he flies to the Kalahari Desert himself, and goes to search for Durkey himself, by on his own, out of his own expenses, and all of that. There was no government search party or anything; they'd given up hope. So he, he, um, he flies there on his own accord, mortgages his house, gives pays everything he's got and goes to look for his lost son. And in the last scene of the movie, the film ends with Durkee unconscious in the desert and, and his father finding him at that, at that last moment, grabbing him and walking him out, carrying him out to the, to the car and to, to safety and, and rescuing him. And Durkee survives and he is alive and he's restored and reconnected with his father it's such an amazing picture that Durkey is like us and that his father is like God and that his father did whatever it took to find Durkey Durkey was so valuable to him Durkey was so important I'm sure there were moments in the movie where he was angry and frustrated how am i going to find Durkey nothing seems to be working nothing seems to be happening you know it's, the word of God is like God sending out um, his message to say, this is how you can survive this world, and, and, and he's given us that, but then he's like, it's not working, they're still lost, they're still, uh, the, I still can't find them, so I'm going to go there myself to the desert and I'm going to find them. This is what our God has done for us, that he would He would find us and restore us back into right relationship with him. You know, the interesting thing is that every time this times in the movie where Durkey would be close to being found, but he would move, he, he would be walking and, and searching, or like trying to get out, and they would just miss him. They would just not find him. And so often our problem is that when we are in a place where we feel lost is that we panic and we, we wander and, and try to find a solution rather than just sit still and wait for God to come and find us that so often we're wandering around trying to to save ourselves that we forget it's only God who can save us, that we need to stop and wait for him to find us. Which brings us to the next thing about God's anger is that God's anger tells us that he will do whatever it takes to find us. He says in this passage, so now after he's talked about, I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. See, the truth is, mankind, you and I, we deserve the wrath and anger of God because of sin. But God swears that he will no longer get angry at us and goes even further to declare that he has made a covenant of peace with us. Now, this is only possible because of God's unfailing love. And we know that that unfailing love is expressed to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the amazing picture of God's willingness to do whatever it takes to restore us back into right relationship with him. Jesus is God turning back to us after his anger and making things right. This is the powerful thing. I thought about this and I thought about myself as a young parent and um, my kids doing some stuff that I didn't like and I wasn't happy about. I know it's hard to believe that they would ever have been naughty because they're so amazing. But, you know, when they were young, they were terrible. No, no. But the fact is, I remember on a few occasions, and probably not enough, of, enough occasions, but on a few occasions, getting so angry at them, and I won't tell you which one it was, but getting so angry at them that I was, I was in there ready to explode and let them know the full wrath of Ben Carboni. Uh, and, and I knew that if I did it, I would say something I shouldn't or I would do something that I shouldn't. And so I remember times that I would have to turn away and just walk out of the room and just go, I'll just deal with this later when I calm down. And then I would come back and I would sit down with them and I'd explain what had happened and what was going on and why I was so angry and restore the relationship with them and restore the the bond that we had. Now, see, this is what God is saying, is that, yes, I, for a brief moment, I had to turn away. Because if I didn't turn away, you would have experienced my full wrath, and you would have not survived that. But I turned away, and I came back in unfailing love and compassion to restore you back to myself. That through Jesus, I would create a covenant of peace with you. And that covenant of peace that God has established is Jesus. You see, the old covenant is gone, the law is God, and the new covenant, which is founded upon Jesus' death and resurrection, is with us now. And God says in this passage, that unfailing love will not be shaken, that God has done everything that is required, and so we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be worried, because God has done everything we need through Jesus Christ. There's a verse... In Ephesians 5, 6, and 9, I love this passage, but it says it so powerfully and explains it so well. For a while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much for then, having now been justified by his blood, by Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. God is no longer angry at you and I because of Jesus. Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, we are now clothed in not our righteousness, but his righteousness. Because we were so valuable, Jesus paid the price once and for all for the sin that separated you and I from God. That, that, that the, the power of sin is broken. And that, that he has done everything required to restore us back into right relationship with God. Why? Because... He values us so much. And his promise is that he would establish a covenant of peace with us. You know, this year we've talked about the fact that God wants us to enlarge our tents and strengthen our tent pegs for what God has in store for us. Now, to understand this, that if we're going to enlarge our tents, we need to understand this truth. The truth is, that you are valuable to God. We need to have a revelation of how important we are to God. Some of us struggle with stuff and struggle with the fact that we make mistakes and think God's going to be mad at me and God's going to be angry at me. But we need to understand, no, I am valuable to God. So I'm going to live my life like someone who is precious to God, rather than worry about what I can't and not fulfill because God has done everything through Jesus Christ to make sure he won't be angry at us again. See, the revelation that God has the right to be angry at us is there, but it's also that his unfailing love means that he is only angry at us for a brief moment and then he turns back to us and is willing to do whatever it takes to restore us back to intimate relationship with him. We see in the person of Jesus, and we know that Jesus' death and resurrection established a covenant of peace with us. And it's important to note that it is a covenant. You know, I often marry people. And the thing that happens when I marry people is they make vows and a covenant together, a marriage covenant, where they make a commitment to make each other the most important thing in their lives. A commitment to work together to make this marriage work. And in the same way, God's declaration to establish a covenant of peace with us is God's vow and commitment to us. I will not get angry at you again, but then we need to make a response to Him. Because a covenant is a two-way thing. It's not just a one-way thing. So we also need to make a commitment as well. We make that commitment on on the knowledge and the foundation and the revelation that God has done everything required to find us at great personal cost to Himself because He knows how valuable and how important we are to Him. And so He has done everything it takes. And so He has dealt with the sin problem once and for all, So we no longer have to worry about being separated from God. And now He is offering us this covenant of peace to live in ongoing right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. You see, if you believe God wants you to expand your tent and He wants to fill your life with everything He has for you this year, I believe it requires a fresh commitment to that covenant of peace. A fresh commitment to make God your first An ultimate priority. Now I'm married to Julie and uh, I've made a covenant with her in marriage and that covenant I made with her was was basically to say, when I said uh, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, all of that stuff, I was basically saying to her, I'm making you the most important person in my life. And she would say it back to me, I'm making you the most important. I'm making a commitment to you. And the way we make our marriage work is by keeping that sort of affection and belief. That I believe Julie is the most valuable person in my life. Even above my kids. She comes before my kids. The only person that comes above her is God. But... She is the most important. And when you, when you do that, that's the, the grounds for a successful marriage. Now, we, we make mistakes. There are times when I take her for granted. Julie never does. There are times where I take her for granted. There are times where I don't love her as the most important person in my life. There are times that happens. I know it's hard to believe, but there are times that happens. I know she is so lovable that I could never not love her but there are times where in my own humanity I fall short of loving her with everything I have but there are are those moments where we we talk about stuff and we address stuff and we we discover that or she might tell me quite directly why aren't you treating me the way you should be as you know she probably would (laughs) She might, no, occasionally she might go, what's going on or what's happening? And there are times where I have to reconsider and of my commitment to her. And I have to be reminded that I need to make her my first priority. And, you know, it's no different in our relationship with God. Life happens. Stuff happens. And sometimes we do get distracted by things and and, and, not, and life just gets the better of us and we need to be reminded to make God our first priority. We need to be reminded of how valuable we are to God. We need to be reminded of what he has done to make sure that we will never be separated from him again. But we also need to be reminded to make him our first priority, to make him our absolute first priority. So today, I want us to remember that God has done everything to make a relationship with him possible. But it's our responsibility to understand how valuable we really are to him and to do whatever it takes to stay close to him. And sometimes that means making a recommitment to our relationship with God. You see, I believe if we're going to see everything come to pass that God wants to bring to pass this year, it requires us to be fully engaged, fully invested in our relationship with him. We've talked about today God's anger and the reality of it and that that it's true and that I've talked about it from that perspective that it's because he lost something that he was angry but now he reaches out to us in a covenant of peace to say, will you join me? Jesus has paid the price so that we don't have to experience God's anger any longer. But it does require a response from us to say, God, I enter that covenant. I make a commitment to you. And so today I'm actually going to ask us to consider that, to consider making that recommitment in our heart of hearts. And so I would ask you, if you want to, to say a vow with me, to say a vow of, commi- of your commitment to God, of your gratefulness to God and your reality, your realisation that God is everything you need. And if you feel like you want to make that fresh commitment, what I'd ask you to do is to stand with me, please. And, we're gonna sa- and I'm going to pray it and I- I'm going to ask you to pray it after me. So if you feel like you, in that place where you want to make a fresh commitment to God and say, God, I understand how precious I am to you and I, I want to make a fresh commitment to you. Thanks, Carrie. So pray after me. Today I ask you, Jesus, to be my Lord. I commit my whole life to you. I know I am weak. I know I've made mistakes, and I know I will make mistakes, but I put my trust in your love for me, that love that covers a multitude of sins. Thank you for everything. Thank you for everything you have done for me. In Jesus' name, amen.